Alright, hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of a podcast directed by. So, Andrew and I are continuing our kind of journey through actors turned directors. And in this episode, we are taking a look at pretty famous child stars that became directors. So we will be taking a look at Whip It uh, and then Little Man Tate. So, Andrew, welcome back uh, for your third episode out of five. Uh, are you tired of this yeah. yet? Uh, no, but I'm curious whether the listeners are tired of me yet. But uh, oh, I you know, think that's not, defi- um... definitely a yes. I mean, really. I mean, <laughs> <let's>... <laughs> no, no, this has been this has been really interesting and very exciting. Um, and uh, as I mentioned on the last episode, you know, a lot of these films I have already seen before, so it's a uh, it's a nice stroll to look through it with the the forced perspective of seeing how these actors turn directors are telling these films or mm-hmm. telling their stories, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to start with Whip It, uh, which is directed by Drew Barrymore. So it's her directorial debut. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's essentially a movie. It's a coming of age movie uh, about roller derby, which actually, I guess, like I was doing like the barest amount of research as we do on the show. Uh, and it actually resulted in like a lot of, uh, a lot of interest in roller derby and it becoming you know, a little more accessible to people and a little more popular. Uh, so that's kind of cool. I always like when movies uh, or really any art form kind of translates in that real life way where it like actually impacts people. And they're like, yeah, I want to do that. So it's cool that that actually happened here. But let's talk about before we get into the movie, uh, let's talk about, you know, Drew Barrymore. I mean, I guess both as an actress and as a director. It's interesting because like kind of spoiler alert, we'll get into it. But both of us really like this movie a lot. Um, but yet it did not, and it did okay. It's not like it failed or anything as far as, you know, cause it can't have cost anything to make. Uh, and yet she never went back to the director's chair. I guess she directed one video short, um, after this, but that's kind of it. Um, yeah. so do you have any insight into like, you know, why you think that might've happened or like what's going on here? Is this just one more case of like, you know, women directors not getting a fair shot? Or maybe is this just like, I had this one movie I wanted to make and now I'm bowing out? I don't know. And it really bothers me because she's really good as a director here. And this kind of came around the time where, I mean, she's always been a mainstay in Hollywood and stuff like that, but there felt like a bit of a Reemergence, uh, reemergence, rather of uh, of her talents during this particular era. She uh, won a uh, she's received a SAG award and a Golden Globe for her performance in Grey Gardens around the same time as well. So it's like the the Barrymore uh, Renaissance, I guess, in some regards. And I would had hoped that that would have carried across to more directing films because certainly she stacks this entire film with a lot of great women talent, and there's not very many. Men as such, besides uh, Daniel Stern and some random dude as well who's not in all that much. Oh, and Jimmy Fallon too. But, you know, there's it's mostly women, and it's a story about women. And so I was really hoping that she would carry on doing that kind of stuff because, uh, you know, there's there's a an easy buy-in with somebody like Drew Barrymore. You know what you're getting, and mm-hmm. it's usually really good stuff. So I'm as confused and perplexed as you are. I've got no idea. Yeah, it's interesting because there's, you know, there's some directors we've covered on here where we're like, yeah, we could see they're, they're really talented and then ends up they make, you know, at least, at least four or five other movies, like over maybe a 10 year period. Uh, and then you have Drew Barrymore, who we both think like made a really enjoyable coming of age movie here 
and then never did anything again. So it's kind of a shame. But let's let's talk about the movie itself because I think you mentioned that this is very female focused, and it absolutely is. Like Jimmy Fallon is in it, uh, and maybe his best his best performance in anything ever. I think he's really enjoyable here. Uh, but as you said, you know, there's kind of a fuckboy character who shows up, and you know, you have her dad, but it's not very often you see a coming of age female story that tends to not be focused on men or like, of course there is like a, a mild subplot of like getting her heart broken by this dude, but like, it seems less important than in, in movies about women headed by men. So it really struck me that like, this is really about her coming into her own as a person and these like female friendships that she builds on the way to that. Yeah, and that that's one of the things which I really must applaud is because so often in films where there is a romantic relationship and it doesn't carry on or he cheats on her or something like that, um, it's presented like it's the end of that girl's world. Like mm-hmm. she will never, ever be able to move on from this point at all. But here in the film, it's just like, yeah, that was bound to happen. It's just one of the road bumps in life. She gets over it pretty quickly, and that's not her core interest in life. Like, this one boy is not, like, everything to her. It's just an appendage to what she's doing. And and I really like that because it's – I mean, it's not a major point of this particular film, but it's right. it's so often a part of these kinds of stories. And that's what I like about it. It's just so earnestly – you know, there's, there's something about this that kind of um, – it kind of reflects in from my perspective at least it reflects Drew Barrymore's growing up in a lot of ways and i wonder whether that's why she chose to tell this story because certainly i mean i'd seen it in the initial release and i hadn't seen it since so i messaged you like pretty much within the first 5 minutes because i wasn't i didn't know what the debutante ball thing was <laughs> even though i've seen little women just recently i'm like are they trying to sell this girl off to like men and stuff like that I completely forgot about that. It's explained in the film, but mm-hmm. um, there's this whole nature of this young girl basically living, forced to live a life and never being properly able to actually grow up and do what she wants to do, which you know, it's kind of reflected in Drew Barrymore's own life where she, you know, as soon as she kind of hit, what, 15, 16 years of age was really into heavily into drugs and stuff like that. And this is not a clear reflection of that in a lot of ways, but I wonder if this is her exercising some of those past uh, problems that she's had in her life. I mean, I think you could even go earlier than that. The fact that she is from a famous Hollywood family and she started off her acting career at a very young age and was never really given probably, I mean, I'm making assumptions here, but probably not really given the opportunity to kind of make her own decisions about the things she wanted to do because she was kind of thrown into that life very early. And if you look at Bliss, at Ellen Page's character in this movie, like she's kind of thrown into this world uh, by her mother, who is a former beauty queen, and she's kind of pushing her to enter into these pageants, whether she's interested or not. And this, like, actually finding her own way is, I think, the main part of the movie is, like, finding something that she's passionate about and something that she cares about as much as her mom cares about beauty pageants. And, of course, you can't get any further away from a beauty pageant than roller derby. Like, it is rough. <laughs> yeah. It is violent. You know, it is – I mean, but it's also got that same kind of competitiveness that the beauty pageant world has too. And But in some ways, I guess, is a little more honest about it. It's not like we're not about – like we're going to look pretty. We're going to do this 
in this kind of underhanded way. Like everyone knows, like everyone is out to get you in the world of roller derby, which I, which I kind of love. And it also has that, um, that kind of sports movie quality, that kind of lovable losers, uh, kind of quality that like, you know, something like the bad news bears had, you know, and I like the fact that this movie bookends itself, uh, with the kind of we're number two, uh, chant. It goes on like you have that, you know, when they kind of first lose their first match and then when they almost win the championship at the end. So but even though you have that same chant, you have this obvious growth and connection between all these women. So like those chants, even though they're the exact same words, have just this completely different message. And I was like, wow, this is this is really well structured. And I think that's the thing that wowed me most about this movie because it feels like, oh, you could kind of just have a good time with this. Maybe it's a throwaway movie. This is one of those movies I had never seen before this podcast. And it was one of those that I always meant to see. Like, oh, yeah, because I actually have friends who have been in roller derby and they, of course, love this. This is like their – this is their Citizen Kane, you know? They're just like, finally, <laughs> someone is telling the story I want to hear. Um, so I'd always meant to see it, but I kind of made this assumption, and this is on me. That I was like, oh, this is probably a fine coming of age story and kind of throwaway. But I was actually surprised at how much I was moved by this and how much I was engaged with it for the entire runtime. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the things. Like, I am not a fan of sports films at all, mostly because they are so rote and, you know, formulaic in a lot of ways. I just assumed that you, know, you were a nerd. I just, you know, I, no. <laughs> Look, I didn't want to shame fellow nerds out there and you know and all that kind of I stuff, but that is that. the reason why. <laughs> but it's just that you know they 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 follow a a routine kind of thing, and and unfortunately because of how great a film like Rocky was, when you have an ending where the team that you hope wins doesn't win, and it's still hard to get that victorious feeling in there, and Drew Barrymore manages to do that here very very well, mm-hmm. but. I would argue that Whippet is one of the very few, and I say this having not watched most of the sports films out there, um, but I would argue it's one of the few sports films to present sports pride in the familial way, like in um, how basically your team becomes your surrogate family in a lot of ways. And, and I felt that so clearly and distinctly here. And then on the flip side as well, I – have long kind of criticized and found that the, you know, the sports family pride kind of thing a little bit on the nose, you know, the, the, right. the dads wearing the jerseys and the, the foam hands and all that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, okay, just settle down. I know that's like the sports culture in America, but it's yes. from an outsider. It's like, Oh, this is too much. But here it, I understood it. Like I got it. Mm. I understood that familial pride and the, the having the pride of, of, a dad being so proud that his daughter is like this poster, literal poster figure for mm-hmm. this sport that people get beaten up with. And <laughs> and I finally understood and appreciated it in a way that I had failed to get that in other sports films. And I mm-hmm. find it really fascinating that it's for a, you know, on paper, this is a really hyper-masculine kind of sport, but it's a sport that women play and mm-hmm. they do it so well. Like, if you haven't seen a roller derby match live, people, you really must go to watch a roller derby match because it's bloody intense mm-hmm. and it's really, really enjoyable. And that's what I love about this film. It immerses you completely in the sport and the culture. And what more can you want? I, I found myself wondering, like, as you were talking about this, um, why this worked for you when, like, other 
other sports movies might not. And I found, and I was just kind of wondering, like, maybe it's because, like, when you when you first see it, for a lot of people, this is a brand new thing, right? You don't have you don't yeah. have the baggage yeah. of like, well, I don't like basketball, I don't like American football, I don't like golf, like whatever it is. Like, I uh, I'm not into that, so I'm not going to be into this movie. So we come in with like a chip on our shoulder a little bit. Um, but this is kind of a brand new thing, especially if, if you're not from certain areas, like it's really big in Texas. It's really big in the Bay area, but like, there's a lot of places where like people like roller derby, like that movie with James Caan, like what, what are we, what are we talking about? (laughs) Uh, and I think the movie knows that. And one of the only like relative weaknesses, uh, as I was watching this movie is there is a lot of like, okay, idiots, let me explain the sport to you in that first, (laughs) in that first couple scenes. But I think it works because our lead character doesn't really understand it either. So she's learning as yeah. we're learning and that kind of works. But what do you think about that idea that like bringing in kind of a relatively unknown sport, do you think that helps, you know, you as a viewer or other viewers kind of get over the chip we have of like, well, I don't like sports movies. Well, definitely, especially because, you know, in Australia at least, and I'm sure it's the same with every other country, but my sport is AFL, Australian Football League, and that is, you know, that's what I live for. That's my passion sport. Mm-hmm. So when another sport comes along, I'm like, yeah, I've tried that sport. It's boring. I'm not interested <laughs> in it. So you already step back, like soccer, for example. You know, I, I just can't I just can't get over how boring that sport is. So whenever I'm presented with a movie about soccer, I'm like, oh, I just don't care. <laughs> and I just don't care, which is like, I can. I'm. I'm curious about to see what Taika Waititi is going to do with the soccer film because I'm like, dude, you did okay with making you know Nazis kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> soccer, I don't know. That's a bigger challenge. And so <laughs> that's a bigger challenge just, to you, making soccer interesting and palatable rather than Nazis. That's interesting. Yeah, that's yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> I just thought I'd you know, but that, but that's it. That like. I think I just, you've been I listening to the people in power that, uh, in Australia for a little too long, man. You need to just yeah. break sense. <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, that's that's the level of dislike and distaste that people have for certain sports. So it's a huge hurdle. It's a massive hurdle for people to get over that mm-hmm. and appreciate a story that's being told about those sports. So, yeah, it mm-hmm. certainly helps when you've got something like roller derby being the sport that's being used. Yeah. To tell a really, really warm and, and easy to digest story. Yeah. It's interesting because it is really warm. Like you have, you know, you have the family aspect, which ends up warm, but it's definitely combative as the movie goes on. And then the most of the warmth comes from the teammates, like kind of bringing her into this world and really kind of helping her along and connecting. And that's all really good. But then you also have the interaction between Ellen Page uh, and Juliette Lewis, who is kind of the star on the on the best team in the league. And that's actually some of my favorite stuff in the movie. Uh, because of course, you know, it is one of these, you know, coming of age, feel good movies. So there is a point in the movie late where you have this kind of like, you know, we have mutual respect for each other. Now we may not be best buddies or anything, but like I get you and we get each other. And that's a really easy thing to mess up. Uh, because mm-hmm. in a lot of movies, particularly sports movies, uh, I think, you know, Rocky is the best example, you brought that up earlier, of this working, right? By the end, there is this mutual respect and like, I don't ever want to fight you again, all that good stuff. Um, but if you, if you make too many leaps, 
um, if there's not enough work done in the script as you move forward, then when you have that mutual respect moment, the audience is left wondering, but why? Why would this, why would this work out? But I think everything that leads up to it, including that like really enjoyable, like massive food fight that happens like that, that stuff all combines to make a narrative, even aside from the family stuff and the family team stuff, just these two together. And I was really impressed with Ellen Page, especially for a younger actress to like really hold her own with Juliette Lewis. And this actually might be my favorite Juliette Lewis performance. Like I think she's just great here. Like balances all the stuff going on really well. She is really good, but the whole cast is great. And, mm-hmm. you know, even, even having, uh, you know, Drew Barrymore gives herself a really great little character to work with. And yes. as we mentioned, Jimmy Fallon is, is quite enjoyable there. And it's clear that there's, I gotta a, tell you, when he first friendship. showed up, when he first showed up, I was like, fuck, man, I, <laughs> I don't, now I'm not gonna like this movie. And I was enjoying this, but like, he's good because he plays a buffoon. You know, and that's yeah. like what he should be doing. <laughs> yeah. And and that's it. Like the the whole entire cast. I mean, there's some really, really great people and I, I particularly like Kristen Wiig, who I completely forgot that she was in this film yeah. and she has some really nice dramatic moments in there. It's, mm-hmm. it's a reminder of how she has Certainly in the 2010s after this, did some exceptional work as both a dr- dramatic and comedic actress. And, and I think this is kind of the great um, uh, groundwork for that particular career path for, to go ahead with. And she does a really fantastic job. But I think personally my favorite performance here is Marsha Gay Harden. I just think that she's absolutely fantastic. And it's expected. I mean, it's Marsha Gay Harden. But she's presenting herself as a bitter mother and in a and you completely understand and sympathize and empathize with her in a lot of ways and there's a particular point near the end where um you know she gets to read bliss's uh speech that she would have given if she didn't go off to do the the uh the the roller derby event good moment and yeah it's a great moment because she's just sitting there and you think that she's going to burst into tears, but she holds it back so well. And yep. like, I, I, you get the impression that, that as soon as the, that, that scene stops fits. rolling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you get the impression that as soon as that scene stopped rolling, she would have let all those tears out and burst into tears and, and have that emotional result that we would have expected. Right. And that's what a great actor she is. Um, but it's so good. It's just such an entertaining film in a lot of different ways. And I commented about, I tweeted about this saying, you know, not to disparage the Pitch Perfect films, but in a lot of ways I'm like, how did we get three of those movies and yet we've only got one Whip It? I kind of wanted to see, I want to see Whip It again or, you know, Whip It 2 or whatever. You know, I want to see what happens going on from here because these characters are so enjoyable to spend time with and it's such a complete culture and respectful presentation of the culture that i just i admire it a lot yeah absolutely would you see a sequel to this would you desperately want to see it i mean desperately seems strong uh but i would absolutely see a sequel to this Uh, i'm kind of mad at myself that i didn't see this one until now uh because i kind of wish i had seen it more than once like it was a really i mean i love a good coming of age movie like that was the course of stuff as as most of us are that was the stuff i was kind of like raised on and the stuff that really got me into movies or things like the breakfast club and like you know figure out who you are you know through these stressful events 
Uh, and this one really works. One thing I did misspeak on earlier, uh, I said, so we couldn't have lost any money and it did lose money. Uh, it cost 16 million and it, and it made 15. So maybe that's why, uh, she wasn't given another shot right away. Or maybe it was a, maybe it was a choice of hers. Uh, but I did so want you're, to talk. You're part of the problem here, Dave. <laughs> I you, am. You had I, your, you had the I could have brought them there. even. We were so close. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but one thing I want to talk about before we move on to the next movie is, you know, specifically about Drew Barrymore as a director. Um, a couple things I noticed is that the, it's real. We talked about the advantage of bringing in a new sport. The disadvantage of that is there's not a set way to film it. There's not, um, if in a football movie or a baseball movie or whatever you want to choose, if you're a fan of that sport, you can kind of fill in the blanks, right? You're like, oh, I know what they're getting at here. And you don't have that here. And yet, I feel like all the quote unquote action sequences, the sports sequences work really well. They, they work physically and they also work to kind of build up the drama. Uh, and I think the other thing she really uh, excels at is getting, you know, not only great performances out of great actors, but balancing all of them. Like we mentioned how oh, stacked yeah. this cast is. It's a great cast from top to bottom, but it never feels out of balance. It never feels like, oh, I wish I got more from them and less from our lead character. Like it just, honestly, it just feels right the whole way through. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and certainly, you know, back to those uh, the race, the, the the game sequences, you are immersed in the actual event itself. And mm-hmm. even though we've literally only just learnt the rules of the game, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And every single time that it takes place, you're like, and it comes back to Jimmy Fallon. I, I, I hate to keep on praising him here, but look at you, just like this narration. cast full of amazing women. And you're like, let's talk about Jimmy Fallon some more. <laughs> Look, I just want to heap the praise on the guy, you know? I want to come back to doing to, good performances. To be fair, it's the one opportunity to heap praise upon Jimmy Fallon, so go ahead. It is, yeah. <laughs> but but that's it. Like, he – the way that he um, – what do they call those people? The the, the uh, commentators, that's it. Um, mm-hmm. The way he commentates the actual match itself really just immerses you completely in there. And I think yeah. that it really helps that you have – actual roller derby people who are uh, making up you know coloring in the 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 gaps there of the different players and and certainly having somebody like zoe bell as well there is like you know she's always enjoyable to see appear but when you have her presence there you know that she's helped the other women basically do the the stunts in the correct way and so it's going to be done in a really impressive immersive way and that and that helps a lot it goes a long way and that and that's what i think really works with barry moore's direction is that she has a lot of understanding of why this all works and it all works because you have women working with women who are supporting each other yep and that's that's a core thing you know it's it's absolutely brilliant um as a side note as well, I don't know if you noticed, but the, the song that's sung over the closing credits is um, uh, written and sung by Lorraine Scafaria. I did. I, I thought... looked that up, actually, because I, as I was watching the credits, I saw that name and I was like, I know that name. It's the, you know, the director of Hustlers uh, from this year. Uh, and I was very shocked to see, like, also pretty good musician, too. So yeah. just a woman of yeah. all talents, but uh, God forbid we you know, give women opportunities in Hollywood because, you know. <laughs> and that's it. And that's it. Like, I mean, it, this is exactly what Drew Barrymore's doing. She's giving women 
a chance. Yeah. And unfortunately, we're going to, uh, you know, she's been denied the opportunity in whatever way um, by people like yourself, Dave, who didn't financially support the film when oh. it was in theatres. Jeez, here um, we go. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> um, you know, but they, but she's been denied whatever chance to be able to direct another one. And I haven't, I did some to try and find some reasoning as to why she hasn't directed again, but I can only put it down to the fact that it's been so hard to get films directed by women off the ground. Yeah. And yeah, which is really disappointing. It, yeah. it really is because she's got a great voice and I don't know whether she would replicate that again, but I sure do hope. I mean, she's young. Yeah. She's really young. So I sure do hope that she does pick up the camera again and decide to tell another story. Hey, maybe, maybe, maybe this podcast. Maybe someday we will get a Whippet sequel uh, with our lead character from the first one being the, like, older mentor figure of a, someone new coming in. You know, there's lots of, you know, even when you uh, when you unfortunately don't get continuations right away, there's still a way, I think, to have some fun with it. But I just hope, you know, if, I mean, we are, of course, making assumptions. We don't know for sure that, like, Drew Barrymore really wants to direct and the system is stopping her from doing it because she is a big name. She probably has some pull. Um, but, uh, I just, I would like to see more from her. Uh, cause like if she wasn't Drew Barrymore, if she wasn't a famous actor already and someone came on the scene like this with their first film, I would have been like, I can't wait to see the next movie. Like, let's, mm. let's go. You know? So the fact that it's been this long and there hasn't been another movie from Drew Barrymore is a little bit depressing. And I hope she does either get the opportunity or find a story that she really wants to tell and that we get to see it. I would, I, this time I will give you my money. I swear. Just make <laughs> one more movie. So. And I, I do want to add before we move on to the next one, I do want to add as well. It's, it's films like this that remind me how great Ellen Page can be. Oh yeah. And how like I'm looking over her IMDb and I'm, I don't know. I mean, she's been in a successful Netflix series, so sure. what I'm about to say might not be right. But the cynical part of me is that ever since she came out, I mean, her the, the roles yeah. just have dried up, yep. and yep. The, the quality roles have dried up. And it's like, why? Why is she then forced into doing a Flatliners remake or Robo Dog or oh. Naya Legend of the Golden Dolphin? I'm Jesus. like. She's an Oscar nominee for crying out loud, and she's a great talent. Do we yeah. are we going to deny, you know, her yeah. the chance to, to improve her craft and and show her talents uh, just because of her sexuality? I, I, that gives me the shits, and yeah. I, I'm it's all conjecture. There's nothing being sure. No, nobody's going to come out and say it, but you know, you put two and two together, and you think, well, it's really, really terrible. And a film like Whip It makes me miss seeing her in lead roles so often. Yeah. I, I look forward to seeing an Ellen Page film because yep. she's so good. Absolutely. And it will say uh, Whip It better than Juno. Uh, so uh, with that hot take, we're going to move forward uh, and we're going to talk about Little Man Tate, uh, which is directed by Jodie Foster. Uh, this is one of those movies for me that like, I just, it's, it's one of those movies I've known about forever. Like, I feel like it was one of those movies that played on HBO a lot. Uh, when I was younger and I, I knew what it was about, it was about this like gifted kid, but I was just like never that interested in it. So this was another opportunity, uh, for me to see a new movie, uh, on this month, uh, for this podcast. 
Uh, and I feel like it's, uh, based on everything I'm reading about, like, the critical reaction to it, feels like it's a little overrated. Um, it's a solid movie. Like, it's not, it's not bad, but I did find myself going like, oh, God, come on. And I think a lot of it, as with this type of movie, boils down to a child actor who fucking sucks. Like, just, like, (laughs) I don't feel any, like any like good feelings toward this kid i don't like root for him i was i found myself because the movie starts off of course with jodie foster playing his mother and it's about them and figuring stuff out and then he goes off uh to hang out with diane weiss and you know all of her other weirdo smart kids and then kind of leaves the mother character on the side and i was actually more interested in her than i was in the story that they're choosing to tell and a lot of it's just because jodie foster is a great presence on film and she is and so is Diane Weiss, but she's, Diane Weiss has to work with this, you know, this nonsense child, uh, who's really good at math and music, like anyone cares. Uh, and I'm like, let's go back to like struggling mom who's like a cocktail waitress and trying to figure her own stuff out. Like I was much more interested in that. So the like, basically an hour of this movie, I'm just like, oh God, here we go. Like, I didn't feel bad when the kid got hit by the globe. Like I was just like, <laughs> I just, <laughs> did not care about this kid and that is a problem and especially in a movie and i don't know how much of this is a script choice versus a directorial choice but having this horrible child actor not only you know be in the movie but also be your narrator and do voiceover i was like no this is a bad call um so there's a lot of moments like that and there's a lot of i would say heavy-handed directorial choices but they're it's almost like they realized uh, maybe we shouldn't do this, so they did it very sparsely. Like, there's all these moments where you see, I guess, the kid's brain in action. So, like, people are playing pool, and he, like, sees the angles, which is like, okay, we know this kid is a mathematical genius. I'm pretty sure we could figure out that he's pretty good at geometry without this, like, overlay, this, like, a beautiful mind overlay nonsense. I, I, you know, and I was like, eh. Yeah, I had to... I, I, was, I meant to ask as well, like, how much of this film do you think um, has been influenced? Like, you're watching off this film. How much of it has been influenced by gift culture? Because um. all I kept on thinking whenever um, those moments would come up and all the equations would appear on the screen was that confused lady. Oh, yeah, GIF. yeah, 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 I could yeah. see that. And I'm like, sure. yeah, yeah, she does better job than uh, than he does, <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> But but that's and and that that is a pure sign of how difficult it is it, it, how difficult it is to show your mind working on film. But then on the other hand, how boring it is to see a mind working on film. Like yeah, it, it's ridiculously boring. Like okay, he solves an equation. Great. It's hard to show those machinations. And yes, it certainly it, it becomes difficult then. Uh, with having such a bland child actor on film. And yeah. I, I want to add, like, he's not bad in The Ice Storm, um, which he did six yeah. years later. Yeah, but I agree. It's also kind of like, I don't know, he just, this will sound really terrible, but he doesn't emote enough to make him interesting enough to watch right. for a whole film. He looks like a and tiny psychopath. Like the whole movie, he does. That like, haircut is not doing him favors. Yeah, that's also true. <laughs> uh, you know, and and maybe that's a way of differentiating him from the other smart kids as well. But there's so much, as you're saying, like there's so much manufactured drama in this movie that 
you just don't care when he gets hit in the head with a globe and you don't care about the the bratty um what math magician guy oh, like God. which is such a 90s thing like it felt like he that character walked off the set of the wizard <laughs> and was going to be wearing a power glove or something like that like yep. he just i i watched this film as a kid and we had to watch it during it was kind of like the um one of the films that the teacher dragged out when there was nothing to be done during the day. Oh, it's raining outside. We're supposed to do phys ed, so you're going to watch Little Man Tate again. And, um, yeah, I just – every single time that I've seen it, and it's been a good 15 years since I last saw it, and I watched it four days ago, and every time I've watched it, I'm like, oh, that's not bad. It's not great. And then I immediately forget it. Yeah. Because it's I'd just rather a, it's I'd rather watch a, a movie that's actively bad than this kind of like milk toast middle of the road like just kind of like blah movie and like you I think you mentioned something you know really astute in that this entire movie is feels manufactured uh, yeah. like it doesn't feel genuine like even the you know the moment where he finally like goes on TV and decides to like you know throw a wrench in everything and fuck everything up I was just like I don't even care I just kind of want this. To be over. And again, like, you know, I wanted to get back to Jodie Foster. And then there's also, there's some interesting stuff with Diane Weiss' character and her kind of, like, decisions and how she treats these kids and her and David Hyde Pierce. I was like, that's interesting, too. But they didn't spend any time on that. I think, you know, Harry Connick Jr. is a is a nice performance. It's charming. It's enjoyable. And he does most of the talking uh, in the scenes with Fred, uh, with Fred Tate. Uh, but, like... There's just, it just feels, it's oddly structured in the way that you're just like, I would like to be watching any of the other characters than the one that we're focusing on. And that's a bad yeah. sign. You know, um, yeah. if you're going to make a movie about a genius, it's, it's already, you're, it's already tough, right? Because the nature of genius is, is going to be separate from most of our experiences. As much as I would like to call myself a genius, I am not, and 99% of the world we are not geniuses. So there's automatically this remove that you're dealing with. And then you got like a monotone, no emotional response child in that role. And the distance gets greater and greater and greater. And I think throughout the movie, that distance grows and we feel it in the audience. We're just kind of like, I felt my, my attention waning as I was going, as I, as the film goes on, like the first 15, 20 minutes, I was like, Oh, this is kind of interesting. You're getting, the mom uh, and son story, and then you're getting the story of these people, like, are they taking advantage of this kid, or are they really engaged with, like, helping him be his greatest self? Like, there's some interesting stuff there, but then it just kind of meanders for, like, 45 minutes, and by the end, I'm like, can we just... Then there's this weird subplot with, like, a kid almost dying in a pool. I mean, it's just, like, there's so much <laughs> happening here where I'm like, why? But, but why? Like, I just found myself asking why. For, like, the entire runtime. And, you know, in comparison to Whippet, uh, this movie was a huge success. It made double its budget. So something is wrong uh, with theatergoers. <laughs> but it's interesting as well. Like, so I've got two questions for you. Um, firstly, how do you then make genius interesting on film? And, and are there any films that come to mind that show genius really well? I don't... I and don't... I... I I can't think of any myself, but... Um, I think it works yeah. with supporting characters. Um, weirdly, the first thing that comes to mind is, is Quills, 
Uh, and you have the Marquis de Sade, oh, yeah. who is a literary genius, really fucked up, really strange, but a genius. Uh, and you see him in bits and pieces, and you see these dramatic moments. And so I think what's interesting about that character is not his genius, but how he's employing it. Um, and when you have a child in the lead there, it doesn't really work. And I'm trying to think of like other movies that focus on genius. Obviously, A Beautiful Mind, uh, one of my least favorite movies of all time. So that is definitely out. Um, I think, I think physical genius is much more easy to show on screen because it is a visual medium. But when you're talking about mental powers, uh, I don't think it works. I don't think it ever works yeah. on film. And, you know, people listening, if you have an example of a film that is about a genius who is using their brain, not their body, uh, tell me one that really worked for you. And don't say A Beautiful Mind because I'll block you. Stop it. Don't talk about that movie. But Or, or Theory of Everything. Yeah, see, I still haven't even seen that one because I just like – Oh, I don't. Just, I just don't. know it's Life is not terrible. worth – life is not long enough on your deathbed you'll say oh why did i watch the theory of everything i could have watched whip it again i'll never get it back uh but i do think uh another interesting thing we kind of talked about like maybe uh whip it being tied into kind of drew barrymore's history uh and i can't take credit for this because this is a uh this is an ebert thing but he kind of talked about um this being tied in to maybe foster's life he said Little Man mm. Tate is the kind of movie you enjoy watching. It's about interesting people finding out about themselves, and as Foster creates this little man who sees a lot and knows a lot, but is only gradually beginning to understand a lot, we can hear echoes, perhaps, of a young girl who who once found it more interesting to study French than get her picture in the fan magazines. Um, so I can kind of see that, uh, but uh, Jodie Foster was a much more engaging child actor uh, than this this thing that we have on screen here. So I wish we could have found (laughs) another – and it just goes to show you um, that just because you've experienced something doesn't mean that you can pick it out in other people. You know, Jodie Foster was an amazing child actor and an amazing adult actor. And, of course, there are people whose job it is uh, to do the casting. But I'm sure Jodie Foster had had some say in who this kid was going to be in her her big, you know, debut as a director – um, and it just, man, I just cannot get over how much it does not work, this performance. And if mm. I'm myself wondering, you talked about the difficulties with portraying genius, and I'm wondering, like, even if you had a great child actor with this script, with this kind of overlay of voiceover and all that, like, would it work? I think it would work better, but I'm not sure for me as a viewer, this would ever work. You could get the greatest child actor in the world, and I'd still be kind of like, yeah, but I'm still not really interested. I, I'm genuinely surprised why they didn't go the like stand by me route of having a, a, a you know established actor, older actor doing the voiceover as like. And when I was a kid, you know, yeah. I did this and this and this, and coloring in the story um, where we don't get it from his narration at mm-hmm. all. Uh, I, I'm I'm perplexed as to why they didn't do that, but obviously, as you're saying, there must have been some uh, faith in this particular young kid to say, yeah, you're, um, you're good enough to be the lead of this film. Uh, the other question I was going to ask as well is that, you know, certainly in the, um, in the, the nineties, they, there was a lot of films that are about genius kids and certain things about, you know, genius kids being, 
the the solvers and the solution of the world and all this kind of stuff. And mm. for some reason, the only film that's coming to mind that I can think of the most is like Mercury Rising, which is a terrible film. But <laughs> I'm curious why, like, what the allure was in Genius Kids. And I kind of I, I was thinking about the um the young kid who was a really great chess mind and stuff like that. And they made a film about him Bobby too. Fisher. Um, Bobby Fisher. That's him. Yeah. And you know, that's certainly interesting, but there was a, there seemed to be a real focus in the nineties of smart kids. And I wonder whether it was this uh, push to try and encourage kids to, you know, lean back into education or something like that. Um, I don't think that it was probably a concerted effort, but it just seemed like there was a here and there a real, smattering of films about smart kids uh, which i thought was quite curious yeah i mean i think that's probably a part of it um but i think also what comes up i think i think films about genius uh as you know with adults in those lead care in those lead roles are threatening uh because there's the genius and then there's also the baggage they carry with them um whereas kids like we see them as this like almost like this blank slate Specifically in this movie, especially because that kid has nothing going on in his face. But we see this like, oh, isn't that nice? There's like hope for the future, you know? So you don't have all the negativity that goes along with like tortured genius. And you have this like looking forward aspect. Uh, so, but I still don't think it works. Like I just, I think, yeah. I think genius is more interesting when the, the soul underneath is showing. When we have life experiences, I mean, it doesn't always work. I mean, you've mentioned a beautiful mind a couple of times. I think it doesn't always work, but I think it's much more likely to work when we have some context for that genius and uh, ways that that genius had to suffer to get to where they are. This like, you know, maybe this is sour grapes, but this just feels like, fuck this kid. This kid didn't do anything to deserve this. He's just like <laughs> naturally smart. Good for him, I guess. But like, what is the point? that we're trying to make with this movie is it that like uh yeah he's a genius but he needs uh he needs friends and he needs you know a solid home life like i just with a movie like this that definitely feels like a movie that's like trying to get critical attention i do find myself wondering like but jody what were you trying to say here and i honestly i struggle with it it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like it's trying to say anything or it's, or it's like trying to say too much and it gets muddled I have found that to be uh, applicable to all of her films. Hmm. Now, I haven't seen Money Monster, but I've seen it's very, uh, her it's, other movies. It's also very muddled because I think that's the only yeah. one. Oh, no, I saw Home for the Holidays, uh, which to me is probably her best movie uh, that I've seen. I would agree with that, yeah. Um, cause it's like but a, it's not hard to make a good holiday film, though. You would, you I know, mean, uh, you say that, that, you say that, but there are a lot of bad holiday movies. So sure, sure. that one does feel like it. It helps. Isn't that the one that is that the one Holly Hunter is in? Am I remembering this right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it helps that that has like a great, wonderful cast, and they really get it. Um, but Money Monster is. Hey, like, this has a great, wonderful cast too. I mean, you know? yeah, yeah, but it's it's more contained uh, in terms of like mm -hmm. amount of cast members than Home for the Holidays is. Like this has got. I mean, essentially, it's got like what like three actual roles here. I mean, maybe four. You've got like you know the mom and the and the son. Uh, and then you've got Diane Weiss character, and then I guess Harry Connick Jr. Like David Hyde Pierce is there, but like honestly, anyone could play that part. Like he's got like twenty lines in the whole movie, so it's like it's it's a very yeah. she very smartly cast this. I will give her that, 
I mean, Diane Weiss is wonderful. She's always great. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, her, her movies, the ones that I've seen, cause I can't speak for things like The Beaver, but like, they are very muddled. Don't and speak have, for The Beaver, and, it's awful. <laughs> and they have a lot of messages going on and you're just like, I feel like this could have used like 19 more edits to really like figure out what you're going for here. But that's the thing. I just don't understand what her perspective is as a director. I don't understand what she's trying to say because I think under a more assured direction and certainly uh, having had a rewrite to or two uh, for the script, I think that there would have been a more clear line there mm-hmm. and I think it comes back specifically with Little Man Tate. It comes back to one of the things that is so inherently necessary with uh, films in general. Like it is, it is hard to present films without conflict, yeah. and there is conflict here, but it's not to do with the, the main character at all. Right. It's to do with things that are surrounding him, which is why everybody else is so interesting. Right. And Good point. it's why when you look at a film like Whip It, like the the conflict comes with the sport itself so there's right. there's your conflict right there it's very easy to create that whereas there's no conflict within Tate himself like the little kid himself and that becomes the problem and mm-hmm. Jodie Foster is not an assured enough director to manage a conflictless uh, conflict free lead character and that's a mm-hmm. that's a real shame because yeah i mean as we know she's a two-time oscar winner she is one of the um, best actresses around. She's mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a reason why she is held so high. Um, right. And it's just unfortunate that that doesn't translate to a directing uh, perspective at all. Yeah. And it does. <laughs> this is like a very shitty underhanded uh, compliment, but I do wish maybe that more actresses who became directors uh, were as confident as Jodie Foster is. I don't think she should be as confident as she is. Uh, but she keeps directing, you know what I mean? Like she keeps whatever it takes to get those movies made. She's doing it. Whereas someone like Drew Barrymore is like, well, did it once, didn't make any money. I guess uh, I'm going to stop now. But, you know, like, you know, of the movies I've seen of Jodie Foster's, there's one pretty good one. And that's Home for the Holidays. And the rest are kind of a mess. But she keeps working. You know, she did some TV work for Orange is the New Black and Black Mirror. You know, she made Money Monster in 2016. I don't know if she has anything in the pipeline now. But she, you know, continues working. Uh, so maybe just kind of keep pushing on that door and keep keep bothering people to get your movies made. Because if you have some cachet in Hollywood, you are going to get more opportunities than, you know, last month, you know, we talked about Karen Kusama, who, like, is one of my favorite working directors, but seemingly because of the Hollywood system makes a movie every nine years. You know, so it's like... Finally, she's getting an opportunity to work more regularly. But, like, if you have that name and you have that brand, Hollywood is going to be like, well, you know what? People know Jodie Foster's name. And, like, to be fair, that's the reason I saw Money Monster. was like, oh, Jodie Foster directing. George Clooney is in it. I'm going to go check it out. It was a mistake. But I did pay money to go see it. So that is backing that up. Um so yeah. you're once again the problem here uh, for I'm, I'm perpetuating money in the wrong place. To be fair, I probably would not have seen that movie if I was not doing a new release podcast at that point. That's true. <laughs> high on my list. That was in the movie past days, so I feel a little bit more okay about it. But yeah, I walking into this, you know, I had never seen Whip It. Um, I had never seen Little Man Tate. 
the little man Tate I knew was held in pretty high esteem. So I was. Who, I, who are these people that are doing that? I don't know. I, I want mean, names. I mean, it's not even like individual people, but like if you look at like how it's been reviewed and how it's been rated, like it's, you know, I think I looked online and it sure. was like on Metacritic or whatever. It was like between 70 and 80 out of 100. Um, so that's a pretty good movie. Um, so it's definitely not expecting to prefer the Drew Barrymore movie over the Jodie Foster movie, especially because Drew Barrymore did this one movie and then never directed again. So you have, uh, you have thoughts in your head when you see that and you're like, well, maybe it's not any good. Like maybe it sucks. Maybe that's why she didn't make any more movies, but like the exact opposite happened. So that was kind of a, kind of a nice surprise, uh, to enjoy Whip It as much as I did. It kind of takes, for me, it takes the sting out of not enjoying Little Man Tate that I expected to like. Yeah, and I want to stress, like, I don't hate Little Man Tate. It's not I a do. terrible film. I, I hate it. It's but not terrible. But I, I hate I, it. I hate it because it's not terrible. I would rather yeah. it's terrible. There's honestly, there's nothing worse than having no reaction to a movie. I will take a movie that angers me over, and we'll get to that next week. Uh, but I'll take that over this, where I just like, honestly, I watched this three days ago. I think ago. you're going to have to eat your words over that, but that's fine. We'll deal with that next week. I watched this movie three <laughs> days ago, and I'm like, God, what happened in this again? Like, let me look at Wikipedia. Let me remind myself, because it just, it just goes away, man. Yeah. 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 Oh, well. Oh, well. Yep. Like, look, if you, if, if you need something in the background... Little Man Tate will uh, certainly fill your room with noise. Yeah. Um, Ooh, that's that it. on the poster, my friend. So what we're saying is <laughs> go rent Whip It. Give some money to a good movie and just leave uh, leave this movie uh, back in 1991 where it belongs. It's fine. It can yeah. stay there. So that is it for this episode. Uh, next week, we're going to come back and talk about the Brothers Affleck. Uh, we are going to talk about... <laughs> Gone Baby Gone from Ben, uh, and I'm still here from Casey. Uh, so a lot, there'll be a lot to discuss in that episode, I think. Uh, so until then, uh, please, uh, visit, uh, let me get this address right. It's the, the curb.au.com. Is that right? Yeah, that's it. That's right. how we do, that's how we do dot coms down here. <laughs> Your weird Australian <laughs> nonsense. But check out, uh, Andrew's site. Lots of good film writing there, including film writing by me. Just saying. Go ahead and check that out. Uh, and if you want to follow us on Twitter, um, our handle is at DirectedByPod. And if you would like kind of some extra content from us and you have a little bit of extra change, uh, you can support us on Patreon. This month I will be doing a special episode with Mike on his favorite uh, actor-turned-director, Edward Norton, uh, uh, on Keeping the Faith. Uh, so we'll talk about that. So if you'd like to donate to that, it's just patreon.com slash Leaves are catching eyes, but just me. The white sheets, the tick tick.